welcome to episode 10 of the Slashings Podcast. I'm your host, JR, and this is where we discuss horror's influence from the silver screen and beyond. This intro is being recorded on July 6th, and the following interview was recorded on June 16th. That's right, we officially hit double digits territory in the Slashings headquarters, and I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's listened and participated in this fun audio experiment of mine. I didn't really know what to expect with this outing into the seven seas of Aeronet Radio, and I love it. I wouldn't be doing this stuff without the folks over at Black and White Fright Podcast. They gave me my first real step into the whole podcast world last summer, so thanks are due to that crew. They have a really great show about black and white horror flicks. Go check out the Nosferatu episode if you want to hear me babble and make bad puns. I figured that was the time to do it, because the stakes weren't so high. Get it? Stakes? Vampires? Whatever. I think I'm funny. But for real, I'm having a great time doing this show, and I hope you ghoulies are enjoying it too. Feel free to leave some feedback in the comments on my social media posts, or in the Apple Podcast in the comment section. I'm sure there's a way to convert those star ratings into cash, I just need to find out how. Until then, leave more stars. Welcome to this week's episode of the Slash Things Podcast. I'm joined by my guest, Michelle Soulier. Could you please introduce yourself a little bit? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> I am... I guess first and foremost, these days, I'm the owner of the Green Hand Bookshop in Portland, Maine. Uh, but I am, those who know my store also know that I'm a big horror aficionado, uh, horror fiction, horror film, Halloween stuff, any of that. Um, I also do the Strange Maine blog, and I'm currently working on writing a book about Bigfoot in Maine. Neat. I'm excited to hear, hear more about that book as we get into it. Can you tell me about the history of the Green Hand? Uh, sure. I, when I first opened in 2009, it was because I had gotten bumped out of a job. Mm -hmm. Um, job market was looking terrible for everybody. Um, and I was at a stopping point and I was, I always wondered what would happen if I opened a bookshop, a used bookshop. And my husband was like, well, you could, you could try it now. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, you're right. You're right. I could, I, I, I could do that now. And so that's what happened. Sort of just ran with it. And uh, now it's 10 years later and it still seems strange and <laughs> fabulous in some ways. And it's pans down my favorite used bookstore I've ever been into. It just, it feels so loved and organized and you can tell it's not, yes, it's a job and yes, it's there to make money, but it's a labor of love and caring. And that, that comes through in every nook and cranny of that store. Thank you. <laughs> What is the history of the name, The Green Hand? Uh, that is, that's, it's, I was trying to figure out what to name the shop. And I have a million different sketchbooks because I'm also an artist. Mm-hmm. And I was flipping through them. I was like, there's got to be something in here. And I draw a lot of hands and I draw a lot of eyes. And green is my favorite color. And I ran across a page which had a green hand on it. And I was just like, that's it. And... <laughs> <laughs> Neat. <laughs> I was looking for something that, you know, would be easy to remember and would pique people's curiosity. Um, and somehow in a really abstract kind of way conveyed what I'm interested in doing with the shop. And in the years since I've sort of tried to describe it as themes of mystery and growth. So sort of like a green thumb, but going in many more different directions. Um, But the cool thing is that in the years since I've opened, I've found time and time again, like old pulp paperbacks, uh, old movie posters, uh, short stories, all sorts of weird, obscure references to green hand in odd places, like even (laughs) in Tolkien. 
in the Lord of the Rings, I think in the, maybe in the Silmarillion or somewhere along the way, there's a mention of a green hand, like an order of the green hand kind of thing. So, Neat. so without even knowing it, I was being literary. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fate and kismet combined into one perfectly named bookshop. It worked out great. <laughs> Do you what the first book you sold there was? Oh my gosh. Um, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> Holy moly, I don't remember. Somewhere I still have my first dollar for my first, for my first <laughs> sale, but I did I neglected archivist that I am, I totally neglected to write down what I sold <laughs> for my first book. Uh, it wasn't my book because it wasn't out yet. Yeah, I don't I honestly don't remember. <laughs> it was all a blur, I think, at that point. So a big happy green blur. Yeah. Um, the books that I bought there have been so I, I'm also a huge horror nut hence the horror theme podcast and that whole corner of the store closer to the register is littered with every horror book you can imagine some I didn't even know had existed or could be found now I just it, like even behind you now as you this interview that Stephen King collection you have there is insane and some like like that super out of print and hard to find ones like the um, Stephen King book club one that was all before my time and just even physically seeing them there on a shelf such a really cool thing what do you think the rarest Stephen King piece in particular you've had come through the story is? Um, the one that people keep asking me about, but I will never sell, is I have a standee from when Salem's Lot came out in paperback mm-hmm. um, that uh, Holly uh, Newstein Haudela gave to me. It used to belong to Rick Haudela, um, who when he worked, um, I think, was it Walden Books? Um, one of the mall bookstores that he used to work at, um, that was from the counter there when Salem's Lot first came out, and he uh, kept it all these years. And then after he passed away, Holly, I went to the, their house and helped her by clearing out a whole bunch of his, buying a bunch of his library um, from her because they were going to have to move. And I'm sitting there, and like my car is like packed to the gills because Rick was a voracious reader. <laughs> very like a crazy omnivorous read everything devour it all and so cars packed it was like one of two or three trips at least that I did filling the car and Holly came running out of the house and I thought I'd forgotten something and she was waving this thing and I couldn't tell what it was and she comes up to the car and she says I thought you might want to have this and she hands it to me and I was just like oh what (laughs) so so that was a really exciting moment and I love the fact that it was Ricardo's and I love the fact that it's Salem's Lot which is one of my favorite Stephen King books Mm -hmm. and people bug me all the time to sell it (laughs) ever 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 sell it (laughs) that's the one with like the stone face right with like the crying the single tear yep Um, although it doesn't have the tear on the standee it's just it's a black and white image. And I think there's the little drop of blood. Oh, okay. But it has like long hair, which I don't think is in. I don't think that was on the actual paperback. Yeah, it's different. I think they cut that out for the paperback art. Um, so it's a little bit different, which is also kind of cool. I love mm-hmm. variations. <laughs> <laughs> and w- going from Salem's Lot to another tangentially connected vampire novel, Grady Hendrix's Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, through him is how I found the green hand years ago for the um, randomator paperbacks from hell event that he had done up there. Yes. Yeah. That was super fun. 
that was a really good time. And I, we, I had him on a couple weeks ago for an episode. We talked about your store that another buddy of mine, Jake had messed me saying, I didn't even know who he was or where that store was, but he bought, we sold our souls from you. So that made me very happy that we got a purchase going through that. <laughs> he was the very, I, I've just, because of the COVID stuff, I have been floundering around trying to figure out what to do. And so I started a Shopify site. He's my first customer. Oh, that's um, so exciting. I, I was so excited to actually make a sale. And then he came back and bought the rest of Grady's books. So yes. he's my second customer too. So, <laughs> so you can tell him that he is a star in the green hand firmament for that. <laughs> well, there's one for the archive then. The first Shopify purchase was We Sold Our Souls by Grady Hendrix, sold to Jake. <laughs> Good job, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read the um, Southern Book Club's Guide to Vampires or Slaying Vampires yet? I have. I just have the little teeniest bit of the end left, which ah. is a really bad habit I have with books that I really <laughs> like. I don't want them to end. And so it's sitting waiting for the total finale climax to happen. <laughs> I, really, I really need to sit down and finish it and read it before somebody spoils the ending for me. Ah. But um, but yeah, it's oh, so good. It's really good. It's it, brutal, much like his, it's good. It, that's, we talked about that a little bit too, is it's a solo dark note. Like all of his other books had so much more levity and comedy. This was just, no, I'm going to make it dark and gross. So we're going to stay there. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, but the characters are so, you you have to find out what happens to them. You have to mm-hmm. know because you become so invested in them and you you're there with them, which is, I think one of the greatest things about it. You're right there. And much like his other ones, I promise you it has a good ending and it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, so I've heard, and I would expect no less from Grady, so. <laughs> of course. Who do you think are some of the more, well, not even more recent, just in general, underrated horror authors that are out there? Um, do you, like, so you don't mind recent or older? Um, Whatever you think. <laughs> um, I would say for, for recent stuff, I really feel like John Langan um, gets overlooked, and I know he's not overlooked by everybody, obviously, <laughs> But he's still, I mean, he hasn't hit like that Paul Tremblay high mm-hmm. uh, his career, but his his book, House of Windows, was one of the best modern haunted house books I've ever read. It was so good. Um, and his short stories are great, too. And he's just, you know, he's a nice guy as well. You know, that, <laughs> you know, that holy triumvirate, able to write a good haunted house story. <laughs> and good short stories and is a nice guy <laughs> there you go <laughs> um, so let's see so john langan um who else who else because we all know about grady mm-hmm. grady Hendricks is fast rising to his deserved levels um oh my gosh for older stuff there's so much good stuff um a lot of the stuff i read probably falls under uh authors names that people who are into the older like turn of the century horror already read but Algernon Blackwood mm-hmm. um Manly Wade Wellman um well M.R. James Arthur Mackin those guys I get really stuck on um I'm trying to think of the the lesser known ones that I <laughs> read but of course my brain is ugh, it's been a long day and uh Here's, I'm just like looking over here and seeing stuff on the shelf. And I will say that for like mid-modern stuff, um, a lot of people overlook film novelizations. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I really enjoyed uh, Dennis Etchison's 
novelization of The Fog, John Carpenter's The Fog. I have never read that. I didn't know there was a novelization. Yeah, it adds little bits to it. So you get extra fog. <laughs> Are you looking over at it on the shelf right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I might, okay, okay. I'll send an email in a moment. I got to buy that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that would exist. I need to add that to my shelf. I've been looking for the Halloween novelization as well, but that one proves to be the white whale and is a nightmare to find. Yeah, those have gotten really tough to find. Anything Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween or Friday the 13th related is nuts right now. But then there was a weird series of the Friday the 13th, like, it, it was R.L. Stein-esque, like, kid-themed books in the 90s. What was, what was the deal with that? <laughs> I don't know. There's, they put out, my husband Tristan had them at one point at Coast City Comics, um, there, yeah, there was like a series of like these slightly oversized books. I think they were in hardcover, but they're very slender volumes. So yeah, like a middle grade reader. Yeah. Um, and there was like, it was a whole series of them. I think it maybe went movie by movie. Mm-hmm. Probably, I'm trying to remember. It was a while ago. But yeah, like what an odd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, young child. Here, read all about Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> Be terrified of your school janitor for the rest of your life and never go in the boiler room ever. <laughs> if you had to pick one of the two franchises to stick with and watch only those forever on out, Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street? Jeez. Oh, um, <laughs> that's really tough. Um, I do have a love-hate relationship with Freddy Krueger, mostly because of the pinball machine. <laughs> but um, if I got to keep the pinball machine and play... The Nightmare on Elm Street pinball machine, then I would say definitely the Friday the 13th movies. Oh, wait, the Friday Krueger pinball machine, but we're keeping Friday the 13th movies? Yes. Can I do that? Can we negotiate this? I'll allow that. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> like how I make these end all be all rules. <laughs> yeah, Friday the 13th. I, I can re We were we actually, we just this past week been re watching a bunch of them because they're on one of the streaming networks. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know. I, I love those movies. They're just fun. Like they're generic popcorn filler fun. The cheesy, the ones with cheesy bits in them are just beautiful. The vintage cheese is Crispin Glover and everything. Oh, the dance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's so much buried treasure in those movies. And then New Blood with him, essentially Jason versus Carrie out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We just, yeah. That's, yeah. It's <laughs> I don't need to say anymore. You said it all. The crossover <laughs> that no one asked for. <laughs> what is your most requested item at the store? What's my most requested item? Um, lately, Lovecraft Country is up there for that sure. That makes sense. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, obviously, signed Stephen King, which is like mm. getting really, really, really hard to find. So, and people always. They seem shocked that I don't have it or shocked at the price if I do have it. <laughs> so it's like, I can't win. <laughs> but like, look online for two seconds. The price has always been exorbitant, especially yeah. now. And I thought, you know, when I first opened the shop and probably like five to eight years in, I was like, you know, wow, he's really peaked. This is the size this stuff is going to go until possibly until he dies, which is many years away. Um, but then it came out <laughs> and like everything just went even higher and i don't know how that happened but it did so apparently the market can bear it because he doesn't he doesn't do a whole lot of public events and the ones he does sell out in seconds and even when he does them it's like a one in four chance of getting a signed one 
I've, I've been to a couple and I've lucked out because I've always gone with other people and we've always gotten at least one of us have gotten something signed or came out came away with one. My favorite was the um, what was it up in the U of um, U of M Orono? He did a signing for a re-release of Hearts in Atlantis, which was a really cool one. And as soon as they said that, oh, there's gonna be some signed ones. This one dude ran to the back to try to get like five of the books right away, but they could tell if they peeked into the bag and saw it was ripped open, they knew it was signed. And so they saw this guy coming before Stephen King was even done talking, and guaranteed he got five that were unsigned. <laughs> you gotta balance it out somehow <laughs> exactly like you're, you be there for the event be there for the reading and the presentation don't go there to try to flip books yeah yeah and 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 that's i mean that's the trouble that i've run into is that even to get in to a lot of the events at least in portland it's so difficult now because like you have to pre-order the book and then you get put into a lottery for x number of admissions Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so you're not even guaranteed to actually get in to the event when they do it. So it's, I've, I've kind of given up on meeting him. I met his son. His son has been in the shop before many moons ago. <laughs> Joe um, or Owen? Uh, Joe, Joe, Joe Hill. Cause he was here to see the cryptozoology museum, which of course was oh. closed today, but you know, <laughs> he stuck around. He bought a, a devil bobblehead from me. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Joe is the man and his books too are just starting to explode. And like, I feel like last year he had a crazy number of adaptations all came out and the release of um, full throttle. So he had a, it was a really Joe centric year and his comic book line. Yeah. <laughs> the dude was everywhere. Yeah. I'm reading Nosferatu right now. And it's, I, it's, I cheated and watched the TV, the adaptation before I read it, which is very unusual. Usually I'm really strict about that. Mm-hmm. But this time I flipped it. And now I'm reading the book and I feel like I've got a bonus, you know, because there's so much more in the book. Like, and I'm just I'm super excited. <laughs> <laughs> the book is so, I, the, the book is really, really good. And arguably my favorite thing he put out, I think I love the fireman a whole lot. And I love a lot of the shorts and 20th century ghosts, yeah. but Nosferatu just, that was the one that like grabbed at me. Mm-hmm. And the show, I think I would have appreciated it more if I didn't read the book because the show is good in and of itself. It yeah, is good. Yeah. But I yeah. don't love it as an adaptation of that book. So, yeah. So I think I actually, in this case, did it in the right order. Did it the right way. <laughs> because I think, if you're right, I think I would have been more disappointed by it if I had already read the book. And the, have you ever been down to that library? that Because the, I filmed a lot of that down in um, Rhode Island. Have you been to that library where they have, what's your name, working in in the first season? Oh, I don't think so. Is it in Providence? Yeah, and there's, and there's a great big Lovecraft bust in it. Oh, that's, that's why I went down to check it out to see that. Li- see that. Yeah. And I have. Yep, I have been in there a couple of times, actually. It's but you're very distracted. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the few times where I'd like been to a place that had then seen the seen filming of it after and watching the characters navigate through. I'm like, wait, those rooms don't go that way. And it was the first time I've ever been frustrated at them changing the structure of a building. <laughs> <laughs> so I, with horror in general, obviously that's the major, not, not the major, it's an important section of your store. When did you first start getting into horror? Um, it took me a while. I mean, you know, as a kid, I read like a lot of weird short stories and was way into like unexplained phenomena and read Omni magazine and all that stuff. But, um, I picked up actually Salem's Lot was the first Stephen King book I picked up as a kid. Um, so probably preteen, maybe like 12 years old, maybe a little bit earlier. I don't know. I can't remember, but it was, it was a while ago. (laughs) Um, But I picked it up. I read it as far as that very early chapter where you get to the attic scene 
and then I put it down and I said, I can't do this. <laughs> so I put it down and I didn't pick it up again until I was in my thirties and loved it, but also mm -hmm. found that I still could only read it when the sun was coming up. I, I tried reading it at night and I was like, it's still too creepy. <laughs> So I would read it in the morning while I was having, like, eating breakfast or something. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, that's how good a book it is. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, in my opinion, it's it's fantastic. So, so as a kid, yeah, I didn't, I went through a phase when I was, like, 13 and had a really good friend who was also my cousin. And we watched, like, Poltergeist and a few other things like that on sleepovers one summer. Mm -hmm. And had a lot of fun doing that but I burned out on it quickly. And then I'd have friends get really angry at me because they wanted to go see Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was like, no way. And <laughs> <laughs> because my imagination was a little too good. So I really didn't come to like horror literature. I probably got back into it because of weird fiction. So like Lovecraft, Dunsany, all those guys, like the classic. Mm -hmm. weird fiction stuff which I finally picked up in my teens and then like dug into hardcore through my 20s um and then in my 30s I wound up or say no I must have been in my 20s still in my 20s I met Tristan and we started hanging out as friends and he is like horror cinema just like <laughs> you know binge constantly um and so i found myself in you know hanging out with this little group of friends in this apartment and watching lots and lots and lots of horror movies but in good company mm -hmm. so it was it was a really great entree to the medium because they all watched them a million times and so they were like oh you need to watch this and this and this and they like walked me through <laughs> everything from evil dead to i don't even know and my watershed moment as a horror viewer was when I was up one night, I couldn't sleep. It was like three in the morning. Nobody else was up. And I was sleeping on the couch there at that point. And I went over to the rack of VHS because <laughs> they're still not quite transitioned to DVD yet and pulled out Hellraiser, which I'd never seen. And I sat up and I watched it by myself in the dark and at the end of it I felt really empowered and that was like a real that was a huge moment for me because that I was like okay this is, <laughs> this oh, is yeah. something big and since then <laughs> I've never looked back um and I actually got to meet Ashley Lawrence at one of the first rock and shocks uh, yeah. down in Worcester and get to tell her I was like you know you your role in this for whatever reason was a hugely formative part of my horror experience and thank you. So, so it was nice to be able to do that. Hell yeah. I, a, I love her. B, I love the first two Hellraiser movies. They're so fucking good. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are the, the, and they're just grisly. And like, so, and I'm not, it seems odd because I watch a lot of slasher films, but I'm not heavily into body horror, but mm -hmm. something about Hellraiser elevates it. There's something else going on beyond that it's not just body horror although with Clive Barker there that's you know one of his regular ingredients but he mm -hmm. transforms it somehow I don't know I haven't really sat down and tried to analyze it I like it too much to do that but he what what Barker does with body horror is different it makes it 
I guess almost he's tapping into some weird mythology, some sort of dream logic with it. Mm -hmm. It's not just to shock, although it definitely shocks. It feels like it's part of something bigger. Yes. When he does it. And I feel like his best examples of that, like building that mythology and building that world came from books of blood. Like all of yeah. those short stories are so, I just, it, it, you're right. It creates this whole world, this whole lore that exists solely for Barker. And I, I feel like he lost that later in the career. Yeah. Well, he, he he's had a rough go. I was going to say he's been through some gauntlets, so yeah. I can understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Very grateful for what we got from him. And I exactly. like was Scarlet Gospels his last release. Last official release, anyway. I think so. And even that, like, I, I love the detective character. I love the fact that he was going to delve back into the Hellraiser and Hellbound Heart world, and it just felt so blah. And like, I know there's been rumors that it was like um, not really written by him, but like a, the VC Andrew situation. What's that phrase called that I can't think of? Oh, um, uh, Ghostwriter. Thank you. That was ghostwritten for him. Well, because he also did Subterranean put out. Uh, I think it's called The Toll House or The Toll Gate, which is part of the Hellraiser series, but a different author did it for him. Mm -hmm. And it, it's credited to the other author. So so that might... That would make that sense. Might, might even be who did the... Uh, hmm, who knows? <laughs> Speculation. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> Speculation. <laughs> I think we're starting to see a bit of a return for Clive Barker as far as like media and stuff goes too because like Nightbreed has been at an all-time high for the past couple of years mm -hmm. since like Scream Factory remastered it and put out the director's cut. Now the Cabal cut is getting its own release too. I've seen a bunch of articles the past couple of days that he's gotten or he's suing for the rights back for the Hellraiser franchise. So that would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think he still has the vision for all of his original works mm -hmm. intact. So I, I would like to see a return to form and get some good Hellraiser films because the I, I like three. Three is fun, and then whichever is Inferno that's in space is fun too. <laughs> the other ones just felt so. Oh, it's a good horror movie, but we need to keep the Hellraiser franchise alive, so we'll just slap Pinhead in it. And we'll call it a day. Doug Bradley's still kicking around, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. can you tell me about the the, the Bigfoot book you're writing? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm actually working on the illustrations for it right now. Um, and then there's just a little bit more editing, but it's all written and it's all pretty much ready to go. Um, I got a little slowed down again by the whole COVID thing because I've, the shop had to shift to doing mail order, which is ridiculously time intensive compared to just opening the doors and letting people buy things. <laughs> so, so normally from January through the end of April, I'm only in here four days a week and I can do stuff like finish a book, do the illustrations, interview people, do all the stuff I need to do on those other days. That did not happen this year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so things are lagging probably at least, let's say two months behind where they should be right now. But, but it's like so close, so close. <laughs> I feel like I've been saying that for the last two years, but it really is this time. Just a few more drops of ink and, and then cut a few other drops of ink out and we're done. So as someone who's not overly well-versed, is your book in the like actual cryptozoology and discovering and findings? Is it a fiction book? You said there are interviews in it. What's the, what's the background on it? Mm -hmm. um, actually, the, the focus of it shifted. I mean, my 
whole thing usually is, you know, strange main history. Mm-hmm. So it started out from a very historic end. Um, but then, of course, Shadows in the Woods came out by uh, Daniel Green. And so he basically used a bunch of the material that I was going to be putting back in print for the first time in ever, you know, however many years, how many decades. Um, so I had to shift gears and the need I saw was for the oral history. Um, so people who are alive now who had experiences, but they haven't been recorded um, mm-hmm. beyond maybe on a YouTube video. Somebody interviewing them, like Michael Merchant has interviewed a lot of people and done great work with that. Um, but they're not in books. Um, they're not down on paper. Um, so I decided that that was going to be my mission, um, was to collect um, a good, uh, like, a lot of stories that hadn't been told before. Some of them, like I said, you know, Michael Merchant has interviewed different people, but the bulk of the people I talked to um, had not really talked to anybody else at all. So it's going to be exciting to finally get their accounts out there for other people. Um, And one of the other missions of it it, beyond recording the stories is to get them out there so that other people who've had similar experiences realize that they're not alone. Um, And that was something that a lot of the eyewitnesses voiced to me um, was one of the reasons that they came forward was because they spent so many years thinking that, you know, maybe they were crazy, you know, maybe they imagined it all, maybe they, you know, misconstrued something, it seems absurd, but maybe that's what happened. (laughs) Um, But knowing all the time that there was no way they could argue with what they had seen or experienced themselves. So they want to put their accounts out there. So other people who are in similar situations feel like they're not alone. So, which I'm, I'm all for. So, (laughs) (laughs) and it's fascinating. I, uh, I started out, um, when I, a few years ago, when I started really trying to get eyewitnesses to talk to me, I was, uh, I wasn't really expecting much Mm because, you know, Mainers tend to keep stuff to themselves. Um, they, don't, <laughs> they, don't, they don't tell a lot of tales out of school. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was actually, um, as I interviewed more and more people, I was more and more intrigued because the stories, um, I mean, the details in their accounts are fascinating and it all kind of, makes sense in a weird sort of way like you, the giant hairy monster in the woods makes total sense <laughs> <laughs> hey that was one weekend i was up there by myself don't make a big deal out of it okay <laughs> I ran into something that i never want to see again <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's it <laughs> so yeah so there's it's it's a good mix of stuff where um people had experiences like that that they really don't want to talk about they don't want to think about them more than they have to and then the other side of the coin are the people who felt like that for a long time and then because finding bigfoot came out mm-hmm. and they realized that there were other people out there who are experiencing this stuff and there were people out there who would actually listen to them and not just laugh at them mm-hmm. they got very interested in it and so now they're you know going out and probably taking a few more hikes than they might have normally just to see if they'll run across anything again so <laughs> well, I'm excited for when that comes out. Do we have a name for the book yet, or is that still waiting for once everything is done? Done. It is quite simply Bigfoot in Maine. Hell yeah! 
<laughs> Gets the point of the cross. Love it. And what is your, like, where did you start getting into cryptozoology? Was it a Bigfoot experience or was it something different? Um, no, I have not been lucky enough to have a Bigfoot experience, but, um, uh, like I said, when I was a kid, I was reading Omni magazine and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff like that. I was really into reading about unexplained mysteries. And then, you know, for years, that was always kind of a peripheral interest. Mm-hmm. And then I read, actually, I read Lauren Coleman's book, Mysterious America, um, probably right, like within a year or two of when I actually started the Strange Bane blog. And that inspired me because I was like, wait, this stuff appears like all sorts of weird stuff. Anomalous occurrences seem to happen countrywide. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like pretty much wherever you are, there's something odd going on there that is kind of in this little pocket and doesn't make its way out unless something crazy happens. Um, and so I started looking and realized that Maine is, has plenty, <laughs> has plenty <laughs> of strange stories. And cryptozoology is just one vein of that river of weirdness. Um, so it was in the mix. Um, in Strange Maine, my first book, it's, uh, I, there is one, one chapter, which is devoted to odd animals in Maine, everything from ostriches to unicorns to Bigfoot. <laughs> so, <laughs> and now Bigfoot gets his own book. <laughs> it turns out there's more. And we have books come out like that. We have all sorts of cryptozoology in the area. We've got authors like Stephen King and Paul Tremblay, like you mentioned earlier, and, and Joe Hill too. What do you think it is about New England that inspires all that? It seems like there's a lot of just weird. Yeah, there is. And I feel like Maine, there's something about Maine being up on the edge of everything mm-hmm. that I lends itself to that. We feel, I think it's that old horror trope of the borderland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, William Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderland. <laughs> and then the Borderlands short story anthology series that, you know, came out in the 90s and early 2000s. So I think uh, there is something about being on the edge of things because we're not just on the edge of the United States where we butt up against Canada, but we're also on the edge of the Atlantic, which is like a whole, whole, whole <laughs> other ball of wax, you know, sea monsters and sharks and weird islands and everything. So it's, it's a, it winds up creating a very fertile ground for things to happen. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, add to that the just mammoth swath of forest that runs through the state where there really is land that there's a very good chance that nobody, no single person has stepped on it for hundreds of years. And then you start to have all sorts of possibilities for weirdness going on. (laughs) That's that's a good point. We're surrounded by areas that it is the epitome of the unknown. Like there's no way of of honestly knowing where what's on that land that hasn't been stepped on for a hundred years. What's in the pit of that ocean. And Maine does have that like coast to coast sort of terror. (laughs) Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of rooms for a lot of room for stories in there. And I mean, you're down in Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. Massachusetts has its own very peculiar feel to it. Mm. Um, I worked, um, my husband Tristan and I went down and worked um, when the Spooky World cast moved to Edaville for one season and did a benefit, which they retitled it Evilville. Um, And so I went down with him and it's down in Plymouth. And so we stayed at other Spooky World cast members um, at a trailer on their property. And the country in that area just has 
it just feels old. It feels strange. I don't know what it is, but it's really unique to Massachusetts. Um, so I feel like each of the New England states has its own strangeness to it that has a very particular flavor that if you're paying attention, you'll notice. Maybe I've just been so ingratiated in it, but I've never noticed the Massachusetts weird flavor. And I've <laughs> been down to Edaville, I've been down to Plymouth, I've been through like the old colonial eras, I go to Salem on a regular basis, and maybe I'm just so part of it that I don't notice that I'm also a strange fish person. <laughs> <laughs> And then you looked in the mirror. Dun, dun, dun. Kills. <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's just hiding in plain sight. And you've just looked at it so many times. that It's just part of the landscape. It's got to be. They've got to get away to somewhere. Le- but America as a whole has creepy things hidden in every single nook and cranny. So I don't know how far away I'd have to get before I can look back and see, oh, yeah, Massachusetts is creepy as shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love Spooky World and I'm only a couple miles away from like the original home of it over in Berlin and that oh. old farmhouse they used to have it is still there and there's still some of like the the portraits and like some of the props still up there you know it's covered in like stay away signs but they're still there so I, I and the <laughs> office where I traditionally work at is literally a five minute walk away from where it is oh, so I'll man. often spend lunches over there until I get yelled at and kicked out if my boss <laughs> this, I hope you don't get mad <laughs> well that was like that was the most awesome thing about that location was it was in the woods yeah it was so spooky and just you know and then like when you go to hang out with the celebrities they're like it's like in a barn you know <laughs> <laughs> what you're hanging out with kane hodder slash jason in an abandoned dilapidated barn like there's, there's a little bit of real fear to a fun situation <laughs> which is why they got shut down because it was not a safe farm uh, no <laughs> <laughs> it's been good up in Litchfield too. Like it's still yeah. it's still one of the better haunted houses in the area. Yeah. Although I my personal favorite is um Haunted Overload in Lee, New Hampshire. Same here. Same so here. good. So good. <laughs> the the amount of work and creativity they put into their builds. It, like you just don't see that anywhere else. It's no. so unique. And the fact that like you can go during the day to check it all out and see all the I just, I, it blows my mind. That's like, that, that would be my dream. Like, <laughs> that was like, you know, another direction life could have taken, you know? <laughs> like, There's still time. Haunt in the woods after you buy an orchard, you know? Why not? Open the green hand haunted house. <laughs> the name still applies. There's plenty of room in Portland for a good haunted house. I don't think I've seen one up there. You know why? Why? It's too expensive. Well, square footage is at a premium here. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially in that main drag, where there's so many great shops between you guys and like Coast City Comics are the two I go to every time I'm up there. It's just there, there's a lot there's a lot in that particular drag, but I've never explored that much further into Portland, so maybe that's why I'm not thinking of a good spot for a haunted house. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's so packed and so dense now. Like I think back in the '90s, there might have been potential for like finding a big old space that you could have rented and done something like that seasonally in. Um, but we're just packed to the gills now. Um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's true. So you'd have to go out of town. You'd have to go, you know, probably 20 minutes in any, in any direction. Bring it down to Wells. Give me a beachside haunted house in Wells. (laughs) Berwick. Yeah, exactly. Which trot road. 
There's a witch trot road in Berwick? Yes. Oh, yes, there is. Is there a history about that that I don't know? There is. See if I can remember everything. Uh, <laughs> I believe it was the Reverend George Burroughs, who was arrested and dragged down to Massachusetts oh. from his dinner table um, <laughs> and accused of witchcraft. Um, and I think he was actually executed. Oh. I'm not mistaken, but but the legend associated with with Wichita Road is that he told them that there was a particular way that was more of a shortcut. They would get there quicker. And then there was a huge storm while they were going down the road with like thunder and lightning and everybody got freaked out and they're like, ah, he's a witch. <laughs> so um, that's the uh, that's the folk version. <laughs> <laughs> so and Wichita Road is still there. That's awesome. I all right, so now I have my next goal for next time I go up to Maine. Because, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm spoiled with my, having my house down here in, in Massachusetts. My mom has a place in Wells. And so I just, I just went up there this past weekend because I was supposed to go to the, the Pride's Corner drive-in that was supposed to be showing Evil Dead on Saturday night. Yes. But the people I was going with fell asleep before the movie started and we couldn't go. That's very sad. They're doing the thing on Saturday. Yes, I may have to make a trip up there. It's the pro. <laughs> I'm happy to have spent my money and help supporting that driving because it looks like that one's been there for a wicked long time, which yeah. is really cool. I love supporting older drive-ins, but it's the single feature. It's at midnight. Like I have to stay awake past then to get there. I usually watch Spend before that, and then I'll head up to the drive-in. But <laughs> yep, I was looking at the the evening time too, and I was like, I I don't think I can make it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I love the thing, and I would love to see it at a drive-in, but yeah. oh, <laughs> sleep deprivation does not agree with me anymore. <laughs> it's not a good one to fall asleep to. There's so many horrifying things to wake up to. Nothing says good morning like a, um, you want to say defilibrator, what's the word? Mm. The, the chest thing, the compressions. Right, right. Um, no, wait. Oh. The, the word is wrong. I have it in my head. Um... Anyway, the, the two-paddle shocky thing. That's the technical term we're going to go with. Got me the two-paddle shocky thing. Is that a defibrillator? I think defibrillator. Thank you. I was just mixing up vowels. Defibrillator. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, one of the, arguably the best John Carpenter film that did not get appreciated in its time. Yeah. Oh, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's got legs. <laughs> <laughs> Big, long, spidery ones. <laughs> What have been some of your favorite horror movies coming out over the past couple of years? Oh, um, geez, let's see. I mean, obviously, Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space. So good. Which was, again, brutal, brutal movie, but so beautiful at the same time. I don't often, I haven't, in the last few years, I have not had a chance to go to see movies in the theater very often, but this one, they did a short run here at the Nick. Mm-hmm. And so I went and... I went into, I went to a matinee. So I went in and it was still daylight. And then I came out and it was dark and it was foggy. Mm. And there were all these lights out because it was, you know, just after Christmas. And so it looked like the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like walking home going, okay, something strange is going to (laughs) happen. It was amazing. I felt like I was hallucinating. Um, So yeah, so kudos. Good job. Good job, our friend Richard Stanley. Um, the dude's a madman. Like, his whole backstory is insane. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> I actually got to meet him at the Necronomicon. Whoa. 
few years ago and hang out with him and he is he's awesome um so he i believe there is a green hand sticker on his refrigerator or somewhere in his house in the pyrenees so yes like it's so exciting (laughs) (laughs) um so let's see so yeah uh colorado space um and let's see uh oh haunt I was not expecting to like Haunt as much as I did. And again, um, we actually, Tristan at Coast City did a screening of it at the Nick because uh, it didn't play on a big screen around here. And seriously, that movie is, it's really good um, because if you love Haunt attractions, mm-hmm. you love the feel of them and the sound of them and the experience of going through them and the sound engineering that they did on that movie which uh, Skywalker did, I believe. <laughs> um, it was one of, the, one of the Skywalker crews did it. It's so good. Like, you are in that space with them. And <laughs> <laughs> unforgiving. <laughs> but it is so good. Um, and, uh, yeah, and Damien Maffei was at the screening and was able to take questions and answers. And oh, wow. It was, it was great. Um, so that is definitely, that was a surprise addition to the, to the list and then actually another Damien Maffei movie um Strangers Pray at Night was another kind of technical or dream movie to watch in the theater um, and an unexpected sequel too I never thought we would see more from that Strangers verse and it was a really solid follow-up to it I like it way better than the first movie I'm sorry <laughs> I just the first movie I was just kind of like ah, ah. but Liv Tyler be afraid for Liv Tyler <laughs> But yeah, the um, the atmosphere of it, the weird fogginess and emptiness of that trailer park. Uh, there's just something about it that it, I I love a film that can give you a sense of place and space mm-hmm. as part of what you're experiencing through the eyes of the people in the film. Um, and so that I, that really stands out for me. Um, and I mean, good casting too, obviously. Mm-hmm is another key um i'm trying to think what else <laughs> that i've watched i watch a lot of movies well, and, and it feels like it's been a while because obviously with everything going on now the releases have been so few and far between because <laughs> the last movie i saw like in a formal theater was the new invisible man which was amazing Ooh. but that feels like it was forever ago yeah 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 and we've because our schedule's been crazy for the last few years we've a lot of stuff we watch streaming so yeah. i mean oh obviously the it movies were great um those were really fun especially the first one um satanic panic grady <laughs> no right I've grady actually, and chelsea stardust i have the um the soundtrack on my shuffle now where it's part of my my 2020 soundtrack it's, is it werewolves on wheels or werewolves by Wolf night men of mars <laughs> Men of Mars! <laughs> <laughs> new to me, so I'm getting, the name's got to get stuck in my head a You're little good. better. But, but well, yeah, A, no. Werewolf on Wheels is a great movie, and B, Wolfman <laughs> of Mars rule, and they just put out their own new album last month that is absolutely killer from cover to cover. Yep, so I'm going to have to get that too, because the, <laughs> the, the soundtrack was great. Um, let's see, what uh, uh, ooh, uh is it Ava's Possession? Or Ada's Possession? It's either Ava or Ada, and I'm going to forget now, because it's important um but that was a really weird 
I, I have a fondness for movies that have a very dark sense of humor to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that one definitely had some really fun surprises in it. Uh, so that was really good. And also um, Sean Lennon did the soundtrack for it, which is Love also him. really good. I find a good, like a really good soundtrack often kind of gels everything together. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever yeah. listen to the, the Sean Lennon albums he did with um, Les Claypool, the, Le the Cle Claypool Lennon Delirium? Yes. Yes, so I good did. yeah yeah and I, I went to one of the shows at the state theater and it was just like wow this is like they know how to put on a show yeah like, they really just compel you with their energies yeah i i had picked up les claypool's book at the green hand the tales from the pump house there we go i was like wait there's a connection here i know there is it happens after the books exactly um with obviously everything crazy chaos going on you've you've been selling a whole lot online and you were one of the first stores that I follow online that immediately adapted to that and started selling a whole lot. And it's really inspiring to see good sales and work still going through during this time with like an indie bookstore. How has that been going for you? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a roller coaster. Um, I, I feel like I've been very lucky so far as the support uh, that I've had from my customers. I feel like a lot of people really stepped up and like, even if they were just throwing a little bit, they threw some and, you know, it helped out a lot in some of the really dark hours. Um, right now I'm squeaking by mostly because I finally got one of those little SBA loans. Mm -hmm. um, I did not want to increase my, increase my debt ratio this year, but <laughs> 2020 is throwing a whole bunch of people's plans out the window. So it's, Absolutely. you know, it seems like it's par for the course. Um, so I'm hanging in there, I guess is the biggest answer because, you know, I'm not giving up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm playing it by ear for reopening. It just seems too risky right now. So I'm, yeah. I'm just gonna, I, I feel a little too strongly about the safety of myself and my customers to bother taking unnecessary risks. So I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to recreate the virtual browsing experience for people online so they can get their retail therapy. And um, it's, we live in a very strange world. <laughs> you know, it changes every single second, every single day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you've been doing a great job with posting like all the shelf pictures and showing in the, or showing off the things that are coming in and just kind of getting the word out that you are, you have such a diverse like back catalog and library in that store that there's yeah. always something for everyone in there, whether it's horror nuts like me or history buffs or young adult novel people or young adult novel people. That's kind of weird. People who enjoy reading young adult novels. Um, <laughs> there's something for everyone in there. Yeah. I do try to cover all the bases. I like, uh, I mean, I used to work at the Portland public library and I really feel like, you know, I love a place where one idea can lead to another Mm -hmm. You know, so it feels like it feels very right to just have a huge variety of stuff here where people can be looking at one thing and then think of another thing and then go take a peek at that. And and they wind up in the most unexpected places and find things they didn't expect to see. So that's the whole that's 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 the exciting part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been going for a little bit i think we should start to wind things down um where can people follow the green hand bookstore or updates on your book online oh um yeah so the uh the green hand bookshop is on instagram at at green hand books and then you can also find me uh our, our nascent store our online store presence is at greenhandbookshop.com 
and also there's a blog which is not very active right now because of everything <laughs> else that's going on um and then the strange main stuff the best place to follow that is uh, strangemain.blogspot.com and uh, also um have a, i also have a facebook page for both green handbooks and for strange main so you can you can kind of find me everywhere <laughs> i'm not hard to track down <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to have this conversation with me and share this phenomenal podcast space with all of my little horror follower fans. It means a lot to me that you took the time out for me. Oh, well, I was very happy to. It's um, I, Like I said, I listened to all the episodes leading up to this, and I was actually really delighted because it's, it's, really, to find, it's really fun to find somebody who has such a great appreciation for horror and enthusiasm and a sense of humor and... <laughs> you know it's all wrapped up into one so it's, it's it was a it's a very enjoyable listen so I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it thank you thank you i appreciate that thanks again so much for listening and as i'm recording this i'm about halfway through the fog novelization and it is good so thank you so much for the recommendation michelle i really appreciate it a uh, question that was submitted to me by isaac is orcs or goblins and why uh, I, I can safely say that in what I thought was enough movie viewing and book reading to answer most horror-related questions, I was not prepared for that one. Um, I guess it depends on if it's like Tolkien or D&D or Magic the Gathering. My gut instinct is goblins. Crafty little buggers that swarm and create to destroy. Plus, the old Pete Venter's art for the magic cards was always wicked cool. So, thanks for the question, Isaac. Answer, goblins. That's all I got for you this week. Make sure to check out the show's social media page on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at SlashInningsPod, or you can email me directly at SlashInningsPod at gmail.com. Uh, special shout-out to the company Monsters Are Good. I just got my Monsters Are Against Racism pin in the mail today, and it is sweet. I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep it creepy.